Hello and welcome. My name is R.C. Diedrich, and you're listening to You're All Set, the radio show about navigating the chaos of the world together. Today's episode, Changing the Narrative. You're All Set is sponsored by All Set. Community, everything, all the time. Download All Set in the app or Google Play Store to join a community of forward-looking thinkers looking to make the world a more efficient and effective place. Offer what you have, get what you need. That's what All Set is all about. And now, back to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Jamie Jackson, a professional and personal development consultant working towards her master's in clinical psychology. Our brains are weird places, and yet, we exist in them all the time. We can't really escape our brains because without them, we cease to consciously experience reality. Everything we experience occurs, is filtered and processed through our brains, and consequentially creates our reality. Based on that, learning to navigate our headspace is practically a superpower, controlling reality. With that, I'd like to welcome Jamie to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start at the beginning of your journey. Uh, How did you figure out that you were interested in both professional and personal development as kind of like a career path for you? Yeah. So basically, I fell into it by accident. It was never really the plan for me. Um, It wasn't like I was a little girl with aspirations to become a life coach. So I was the oldest kid on my block, and I did a lot of babysitting. And so that exposure to being around kids, I loved. I was a live-in nanny. Um, I taught preschool for just a minute there. I taught kids tennis. And I just loved being around kids. So later in life, I moved out to California. And um, I was living in Los Angeles. And I was looking for a job. And the regional center in Ventura was so desperate for people to help that they brought me on to help do applied behavior analysis with children. And I didn't have any of the training or anything. Most people have education at that point, and I still had not finished my undergrad. I just knew that I loved children and it involved children. So I started doing applied behavior analysis. They trained me there. And what I loved was seeing how I could help children make changes in their behavior. So it was kind of the love of children and then also getting to see how doing certain actions would create different results. Um, And I thought that was really exciting. And I loved the component of helping. I knew that I always wanted to help, but I didn't know in what capacity and I, I didn't know how I could best do it. But what I realized was kind of looking at these children and seeing them flourish made me realize that that's what I wanted to do. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of how you started getting into that was kind of randomly you were looking for a job and they were like, okay, you can do this without having all the prior education. Yeah. They were so desperate to have anybody come in and help them with the kids that they were like, well, you've got experience with kids. We'll take you. And yeah, you don't have the background training or the education needed, um, which, you know, is kind of wild, but Mm -hmm. they said they would just give me all the training I needed on the spot. And that inspired me then to go back and finish my undergrad in psychology. And from there, I started working at a treatment center in LA as basically a mental health worker. Uh, but it was called an independent living specialist. And I loved it. Um, What was so cool to me was I could relate with so much of what everybody was going through. It just so happened that 
I was on the other side and being a little bit older and having a little bit more life experience at that point. Um, And so I loved just being able to help and apply what I was learning in school. And then from there, I just, I moved up the ladder. I became a group leader. I was a case manager for a while. Um, Then I became the outpatient program coordinator. Um, And I got to do a lot of program development and kind of look at like the big picture, Um, not just working one on one with people, but looking at all the different ways that you can help change people on an organizational level. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about that a little bit more, too. I was just going to continue that question. Like, so how did that like how did you get into like the professional kind of side of the development, working with like leadership and um, those ideas? And also, like, I guess, like, what do you have a preference on which side or I guess do they kind of come for full circle? It's wild because I love both. I, I love the personal and I love the professional. So I got into the professional side. I never thought I would. I thought like business was kind of slimy, kind of sleazy. Like I had images of like used car salesmen. But what I noticed was I was working at the treatment center and um, we had a lot of turnover and we were constantly struggling financially. Um, And it blew my mind because here was this group of super talented clinicians. I loved the work we were doing. I loved seeing all the change that was happening. And yet there was a lot of turmoil on the inside. Um, One of the girls actually would eat lunch in her car because of some workplace bullying. Um, And it just made me realize that there had to be a better way to do this. I don't know how, but I just said there has to be a better way. So I started looking into that. Um, And that's how I kind of discovered organization development. And it just so happened that Pepperdine, which was in Los Angeles, uh, is the number one ranked program globally for organization development. And so I just got really lucky that it was right there and I wanted to pursue it. And I loved the bridge between psychology and business and how so much of what I was already doing in mental health could be used in the workplace. You just change the language a little. Um, but it's the exact same thing. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess it kind of makes sense because it's just the people running these businesses. But I guess you would think that it would be perhaps, I guess, just in my head, I imagine it would be like more technical, like how to deal with people. But um, coming at it with a personal touch, I'm sure gives you kind of like unique perspective. So basically, like you come into a company or you'd work with the CEO and you're going to tell them like how to improve the flow of their workspace. Am I right to say that? Yeah, um, not just the flow. Well, the flow of the workplace, definitely. But I think that team cohesion can be so important. uh, And there can be just so many issues happening within a team um, and dysfunction that you're not even aware of as a leader. Um, One of the my favorite part of all of this work is usually it's the leaders that um, uh, seek me out and hire me. And they'll say, oh, I've got a problem with my staff doing this or that. And and so it's always so interesting because I, before starting anything or a workshop or any work with them, I'll always conduct some interviews and get a sense of um, what the staff thinks is going on. And usually it's just a completely different interpretation, what the CEO or the executives think versus what the staff thinks. And so it's so fascinating to me because it's truly a top-down issue when you talk about culture and leadership. Um, And so what happens on all the different levels mirrors what's happening at the top. And so my job is just to make sure that the leaders are running it in a way that makes them most effective 
usually what I have found is that starts with the foundation of trust and relationships before you can even get to production and results. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like, uh, what are some like the pitfalls that some of these like top level execs or people that are running their businesses fall into? You mentioned like maybe lack of trust, lack of taking the time to build the relationships with their employees. Are there other things that um, are like you see consistently that like, yeah, companies struggle with? Yeah. So one of the things touching on what you said, we say is go slow to go fast. Um, And a lot of times leaders and business owners, um, they just want to hurry up and get the results and just, you know, get this done. And they're very focused on the output and the end result. But what can happen in between there is like communication breakdowns, also different leadership styles. I don't always think, I think that people have a lot of blind spots, especially in management and leadership. And what happens a lot in organizations is you could be a really great employee and you were really great at, um, you're really great as an editor for something. Your editing is your editing editing skills are amazing. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you should be a manager of all the editors. It just means that you're a really good editor. But the way that we promote people often within businesses, the next promotion then is management. And without any type of really strong training, and and most people don't get it. So it's not really their fault. They just get thrown into these management positions without really knowing how to do it properly. And so they don't even know kind of what some of their blind spots are. So my job is to come in and kind of show them where they are missing the mark. But also from a strengths finder perspective of looking at, you know, here's what you do really well. And let's, how can we create more of that within other areas of the business that you're already doing? Another example would be like um, basketball players who then become coaches. That doesn't necessarily, just because you are a great player doesn't mean that you're going to be a great coach. Um, Now, sometimes it just does, but there's a lot of other things involved just besides knowing how to play. Game. Yeah, that's a good point. Because yeah, you could you could be really good. You could even understand the game really well. But if you can't communicate with your team and have there's so much more that goes into the team building. So that's a good point. More. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I like that. So kind of, I guess, transitioning over to the other side of what you work with. So like you work with, you know, like kind of a body of people, a group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also work with individuals who are struggling with their own kind of uh, problems in there. I'm curious as to like, if you saw consistencies when you were working with people Uh, just kind of struggling with getting through life, putting their life together, finding motivation to do things, you know, struggling with depression. Um, Do you Mm -hmm. find consistencies with like the people that you work with um, when it comes to like things that they struggle with? Yeah, I did this study um, in my master's program where I looked at, so this was within an organization looking at individuals and how they did, um, how did their view of their job change once they had individual coaching sessions with me. So I had the opportunity to get to do these individual coaching sessions with them. One of the things that I found in that study in particular was these underlying levels of um, low self-esteem. So everybody's problems might look a little bit different as to how they present themselves, but a lot of what's going on underneath are these really negative core beliefs um, and they're things that we develop often in childhood. They're stories that we've told about ourselves. Originally, they're stories that somehow were told to us. 
we took them in as children and believed them to be truth. And we formulated them as the story of who we are in our adolescence and in um, our young adulthood. And so a lot of what I do is the untelling of those stories, unpacking them, um, looking at, you know, where's the truth within this, and then helping people recreate the story of what they want their life to be. So while I wouldn't say that everybody's core beliefs, their negative core beliefs about themselves were the same, there seems to be a lot of underlying similar and overlapping beliefs that I saw um, or that I continue to see is really like this fear of being unlovable, fear of not being good enough. That's a big one. Fear of failure and just as much a fear of success. Um, and, and so there's this uh, activity you can actually do where you trace an event, something negative maybe that's happened in your life, just like one event. So you take like, um, I was supposed to give a speech today, but I didn't show up because I was so nervous. And you can actually trace back all the way to the negative core belief by just asking why. So just an example would be like, okay, well, why didn't you show up? Well, I was afraid of making a fool of myself. Why were you afraid of making a fool of yourself? Well, because everybody would laugh at me. What would it mean if everybody was to laugh at you? It would mean that I'm not accepted. What would it mean to not be accepted? It would mean that there's something wrong with me. What would it mean if there was something wrong with you? Yeah, yeah. You can get to um, that I'm unlovable. Got you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's a little bit different, but there's a process of kind of unpacking unpacking all these different events that we have in our lives, and they happen without us really even noticing. It's happening all the time. But the decisions that we make, if you look back and you, at it, they're often being uh, navigated or controlled by these negative core beliefs. Gotcha. Okay. So I guess I hear all that. And the one that stuck out to me was when you said, so you're saying like fear of failure, but also fear of success. Like, how does that come in? I think to like the average person, they might hear that and be like, well, one thing I actually am not afraid of is being successful. Like I'd love to be successful, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of people say that they would love to be successful. Then you ask really, well, why aren't you? Um, Well, what's holding you back? Why haven't you been? And it's truly you know, in any circumstance, you can find all the external reasons, but there are people who have overcome whatever those external reasons are. Ultimately, it's coming down to an internal reason. And often, not all the time, but often what it is, is this belief that I'm not worthy of being successful, truly. And so we do these things to sabotage ourselves. Sometimes there's a fear of if I become too successful, now there's more responsibility. People can have a fear of greater responsibility. Yeah, at first it was kind of confusing, but I can totally see how somebody might be like, oh, well, like, I don't really deserve this success. So I'm not like they don't. Yeah, they're not in the right headspace to to make that happen. I guess that makes sense. And also, um, before we move on, and it slips my Mm -hmm. mind, when you did your study with all these people and you're looking at these negative beliefs, what was your results when it came out? Like when you finished doing these sessions with them, how did their view of their career uh, change after your sessions? Yeah, it was awesome. So there was a 13% increase in their view of their workplace and their experience at work. And so 13% doesn't sound like a lot just to you and I, but it's statistically relevant within an organization to have a 13% increase because that increase then 
can create an increase in productivity. Um, and there's kind of a trickle down effect. Gotcha. So not, but not a lot was changed in the workplace besides just like the mentality and kind of Their attitude. And that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Unpacking it and taking the focus back to, so part of the issue was like this kind of this workplace bullying that was happening, or, or I should say that my hypothesis for it was that it was due to a lack of having a, a clear focus on the individual self and focusing on all this external stuff. So my belief was, if you're really motivated about your own life, and you're really excited about your goals and what you're working on, you don't participate in bullying. It doesn't interest you. Um, And so to me, what I was looking to see is, was that true? Or was that accurate? Is there a correlation to that? Um, And of course, this was my first study. So there are tons of things that I would do differently, actually, um, in now looking to get my PhD, I'd actually like to really recreate the study, changing some of the limitations um, that I learned about just as I went through it. So you you deal with these people that are unpacking this baggage and they you start to lead down to these I, these core ideas that are often negative and often even false. Mm-hmm. So then you get there and you're like, okay, here we are. This is not true. What like What are the strategies for now like changing that narrative? To me, the first thing is just the awareness around it and understanding where it came from, because you have to know it to be able to change it. Um, and sometimes that that can take a while. It just depends on whatever it is. And, and sometimes the acceptance piece of here's what happened to me, here's how this affected me. Oftentimes we're really defensive, even of people that may have hurt us. Um, or things that may have happened. And we can come up with all kinds of excuses like, well, that wasn't really abuse or it wasn't really that bad or no, no, they were doing the best they could. And and all of those things can be true, but they're also taking away from allowing yourself to really process the experience, grieve it and be able to move through it. And you can't really move through it until you fully have acknowledged it and then you can let it go. But if you haven't really taken it all in, you, you don't have anything to let go of because you haven't you haven't dealt with it. Gotcha. So kind of just identifying it. So because I guess I imagine for most people, they, they haven't yet identified like, oh, I'm actually telling myself this negative, this false narrative. And so just kind of showing it to them, bringing it to the light is kind of the first step in, I guess, overcoming that. Yeah. And then I think it's really important to ask yourself, how seriously do you want to change it? Whatever this, you know, whatever the behavior is, because sometimes these negative things that we're doing, these negative coping skills, they're actually still reinforcing something for us. Even though we say we want to stop, there's actually still something that they're doing for us that we're not willing to quite let go of yet. And so it's really important to just be aware of that and be honest with yourself. You know, there's there have been times in my life where I really realized like, yeah, I'm not actually ready to let go of that. For, even for me right now, like I love to nap. I love naps. I love to just like watch my shows on Netflix and nap. And in a way, it's a form of like escapism. And it just depends on, you know, how often you're doing it, if it's a problem or anything. But to me, I look at like, what is this behavior still giving me that I don't want to give it up yet? And again, the answer for me would be it's this escape. I get to check out for a little bit. I don't have to be present with, you know, all the stuff on my to-do list or whatever is looming over me. I get to just kind of check out. And so you can apply that on a bigger scale of like drugs, alcohol. I mean, any kind of decision making that you're struggling with. What is this negative behavior still doing for me? And am I truly ready to let go of it? 
And I think a lot of people think they are, but if they were really honest with themselves, it's still doing something for them. Gotcha. So if it is still doing something for them, let's say like, I guess napping could be a a toxic habit, but let's say somebody who is like drinking all the time or, you know, doing even something that's more damaging to themselves, like a harder drug, perhaps they say that they want to, you know, stop doing this, but in reality, it's providing that escapism for them. Like, where does that kind of leave you then? So it can partially can just be out of habit and not having other coping skills in place that can help replace that. And it's never going to be the same. You know, taking a pill is going to feel different than breathing, doing deep breathing, right? But there are other things you can start to put in place. And ultimately, again, you just have to want it enough. You have to really be ready to let it go. And what I think happens is um, whatever the negative consequences are of the drinking or whatever the behavior is, they start to outweigh the positives that you're getting from it. And then that's kind of once that starts, you know, passing the the threshold, you know, pushing over to the other side, then that's when you start to see people being like, okay, I'm actually ready to to make that change. But yeah, and I'm sure it's very hard too for some people to make that change if they've got, you know, countless other negative narratives being told to themselves in their head. I can see how that would definitely, you know, still be a struggle. Yeah. And I think that's why, um, you know, like support groups of all different kinds are so important um, and to reach out or, you know, therapy, whatever it is, but to try and do these things alone. Uh, if we could, we all would. It's just you can't, though. So it's so important to have just all those resources around you to be able to get through it. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah this this is kind of putting this all together as we go. Mm-hmm. I like it. Um, So I guess in in like a a time right now, I think that's particularly interesting, especially um, over the past couple of months with with quarantine and uh, this general kind of feeling of isolation and disconnect. Uh, Like, do you have any specific strategies or like perhaps something you've studied um, that's like kind of combating this loneliness that's I feel like is massively um, being felt or like just coping with uh, the idea of being isolated? That's a tough one for me personally, um, because I actually love being alone. Part of that COVID actually really helped me realize how much I enjoy my own company. In the beginning, I felt actually how you're describing, and I felt kind of sorry for myself. Like, you know, all my other friends have family, um, they have kids, or, you know, they've got a house full of people. And ironically, those same friends are like, help get me out of here. I just want to be left alone. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... In the beginning, I felt kind of sad that I didn't have that. And then the more time I just spent with myself, the more I really realized how much I enjoy my own company. But it wasn't until COVID forced me to spend more time alone that I really realized that I do. Um, And it also forced me to like tap back into some of those old hobbies that I had. Like I used to love painting and I haven't done it in years and years. Um, But COVID gave me the opportunity to do some painting. Well, so I kind of get what you're saying. So it's almost, again, sort of changing the narrative of what you're Mm -hmm. doing. Instead of being isolated, you're actually just keeping yourself company in that sense. You're not alone. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. A shift happened for me that I really realized, one, just how grateful I was that I didn't have to have a house full of people breathing and crunching chips really loud and annoying me. Um, But two, that I just realized how much I actually enjoyed being with myself. And and I didn't know that about me. I really thought that I didn't want to be alone. 
but COVID helped me see that I actually very much enjoy it. Mm, okay. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I think it's definitely throughout this conversation, it seems like uh, being able to change a narrative in your head is a very powerful thing because it practically changes your reality. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess how, how about, how about that? Like how, how do you, what's your tip on like changing a narrative in your head that is so ingrained in people? Like how do you change? I mean, you might start with something like, Oh, like I'm unlovable. Like that's a deep one that I'm sure takes years of, uh, you know, focus and stuff to, to retell, but perhaps something more simple, like, Oh, like I'm lonely. I'm alone. How do you change the narrative to like, Oh, I'm keeping myself company. I'm hanging out with myself. I'm not really isolated. Yeah. So one of the things I start with is just looking at the language that we use. And so I think we can be really cruel to ourselves and to others, but in particular, like, you know, stubborn is just a form of being persistent. Um, And so kind of changing the way that we talk about ourselves and finding what is the the good quality that comes from this. So for me, like I can be highly emotional, but it makes me, I'm, I'm very sensitive. And that sensitivity I used to hate and used to be so ashamed of. And now I love it. Now it's like my superpower because it makes me somebody who's really thoughtful and I'm thinking about, oh, you know, oh, I think they would like this or that without them usually having to ask me. Uh, I can already kind of anticipate what I think somebody might like because I am so sensitive. So kind of finding some of the things about ourselves that we don't like and taking a look at it and seeing, well, what's actually the positive about this? Like what comes out of this that actually does some good? Mm. And focusing on that piece of it and tapping into that and really like going into it and falling in love with it. Yeah. Okay. Embracing that part that you've kind of been cutting off from yourself. Yeah. Embracing the parts of you that you, you know, you may have said you, you hate at one point, but really learning to love the unlovable pieces of yourself. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. That, I feel like that would make sense as, at least as a first step. Um, on a personal level, and maybe this is a little bit intrusive, but just, sure. you know, feel free to answer however you'd like. So when you're like kind of feeling, perhaps you're like been napping too much or you're like, you know, I'm unmotivated, I'm kind of down. Um, you know, I don't know how deeply you deal with depression, but whatever kind of like, you know, low space that I think almost everybody falls into. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your strategies for like bringing yourself out of that? that uh headspace yeah okay well i would say for me um it's more anxiety so i'm more deal with anxiety than depression in particular at this moment okay yeah sure yeah whatever whatever it is for you yeah this the the skills for dealing with them are a little different so that's why just to differentiate for you Okay. Yeah, sure. So for me, for dealing with anxiety, it's usually like it's a social anxiety. So like a fear of, oh, I'm going to embarrass myself. And so for me, the challenge is to, I tell myself, you just have to do it this one time. You can do it this one time. You signed up for it. You do have to go and you never have to do it again. So that's one of my skills is I tell myself, I never have to do this again if I don't want to. And often what happens is like, I end up loving it. So like, you know, a couple of years ago, I started, uh, I wanted, I'd always wanted to take dance classes. I wanted to do hip hop dance, but I just was like, how do I, I tried to get friends to go with me. Nobody would go. And so one day I was like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go this one time. If I absolutely hate it, if it's embarrassing, I never have to go again. I did it. I love it. I've been doing it for three and a half years. I'm now actually a certified instructor in it, but it starts with this just me telling myself, just try it this one time. If you hate it, if it's no good, you never have to do it again. 
And then a lot of like, I mean, I know it's used the example of the deep breathing and that used to annoy me so much when people would talk about that, but breathing is so important and I have to watch my breath often. I had, I actually went to a breathing coach when I lived in Los Angeles um, and I loved, she said, I breathe like a chihuahua. Like I was just taking the, the tiniest little breaths. Um, and so a lot of us with anxiety kind of have that where we're not really taking full breaths. And what I also learned from her is the importance, uh, a deep inhalation is important, but even more important is like one or two seconds longer on the exhale when you're breathing because it uh, calms your nervous system in a different way than when we inhale. So it's really important to have an extended exhale to help calm yourself down. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I have to do some more personal breathing studies because they're, you know, information. I actually didn't know that that much. I know like there's a lot of power in breathing and where you hold your breath and stuff, but that's a good point. Like the exhale. Yeah. I'm going to try that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I guess on the flip side, you mentioned like there's a different kind of strategy or approach to people that aren't dealing with anxiety, but depression. What What is the difference there? Um. So I think like for me, anxiety is a lot of moving. So I'm, you know, cleaning, um, worrying about things. It's much more sped up. Um, With depression, to me, it's much slower. It's a heavier feeling. It's really hard to get up and do things. And we see no, we see no point to it. Things that you used to enjoy, like don't have the same feeling for you. And that can be a really terrifying feeling if, you know, the one thing that used to bring you joy doesn't even spark that for you anymore. To me, some of the important things are for depression is like taking a shower, forcing yourself to stick to a routine, even when you don't want to. And it's the idea of, and I don't like the term acting as if, because I don't, I'm not advocating for anybody to be inauthentic. Um, But what I tell myself is when I'm in a situation, I'm not sure what to do. Act the way I would want to look back at this and say that I handled it. And so for me, that's, you know, following the structure, getting up every day. Most important thing, my medication is exercise. I have to exercise. Um, I later in life learned to love running. I have a yoga practice. I have my dance class. But for me, it's really important that I move my body every day. And that's, that's big for depression and anxiety. And then you create like a tool belt for yourself. And that's for anxiety and depression. But you can even go online and just look up like what are 100 coping skills for anxiety or depression. And they're out there. And you go through and you just take a highlighter and you look at the ones that you're willing to try or what resonates for you. Not all 100 are going to be a fit, but you can probably find a handful um, and you start to practice them and you start to do them when you're feeling good so that when the time comes that you are depressed, you already have these things in place and you already know what you need to do. It's not the right time to implement it when you're in a crisis because by then it's too late. You know, you're, you're not, it's a goner. Um, so it's always better to have like a preventative plan in place than trying to fix it on the back end. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Some, some preparation. That makes sense. Yeah. So as you kind of continue to uh, work with people and, you know, I know you're doing some life coaching now, um, are you looking to like further your career, further your education um, with kind of, you know, understanding how people uh, view themselves and the whole, you know, I guess on both sides, are you going to be 
uh, furthering your education professional development side or personal development side? What are your, yeah. what's your direction? Um, so I am starting my PhD in clinical psychology. Um, and so my end goal is to be a licensed clinical psychologist. I loved the freedom of life coaching. I still do. I love that you don't have to follow quite as many rules when you're licensed. However, what I have noticed right now in the life coaching space is this kind of trend of it's just it's very saturated right now. And kind of anybody selling vitamins is now calling themselves a wellness coach. And I think it's dangerous. And I think that we just have to be careful because when people are coming to us for help, they're in a really vulnerable position. And it's really important to me to make sure that I'm as cautious um, with them in their life as possible. And if I have a client or somebody who's interested in working with me um, and I feel like, you know what, they really need a higher level of care, they need beyond life coaching, I can't ethically take them on just for myself. Yeah, yeah. And so part of why it's so important for me to follow through with this licensing um, is so that I, I can feel confident and feel good about taking on all kinds of levels of trauma, levels of depression and anxiety that are much more severe than what we usually look at in the life coaching space. Um, I just think it's really important to while I have had a lot of really great life experience that has led me to be a great coach, and I've had some great training as well, um, I think it's really important to hold ourselves to a very high standard in mental health um, when we're helping people with the most important part of them, which is their psyche, their soul, that we really truly know what we're doing. And it's not just like a, a fad um, that we decided to kind of try out and see that if we were good at just because we like some inspirational quotes on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. I think you have to be really cautious um, when you're taking care of people. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, like especially them coming in so so vulnerable to whatever you have to say. Um, Definitely. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So kind of as, as a closing question that I like to yeah. offer people um, – if you could offer some like advice or insight, perhaps like understanding um, about just like how we, I guess, communicate with ourselves and communicate with others, kind of just like to the whole population, you know, and also like when it comes to dealing with the highs and lows of life, you know, kind of what uh, do you have like a mentality kind of that you embody that you would offer to uh, the rest of the world? I do. Um, and it comes from my favorite book from the four agreements, be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personally. Don't make assumptions and always do your best. And to me, the most important one, and I think actually the book talks about this as well, is being impeccable with your word is the most important thing. And that means with other people and also with yourself. So if you say you're going to do something, it's important that you follow through, even if you only said it to yourself, because every time you don't, you learn to distrust yourself a little bit more. And so the most important thing in how we build self-esteem is through esteemable acts. And that starts with being accountable for our with our words to ourselves and to others. And so my kind of my life motto is just that always tell the truth no matter what doesn't matter what it looks like and the situation you just have to tell the truth gotcha okay awesome i think that that is beautiful and i have not fully read that book but i have to say i've gifted it to my mother so oh. i need to do my own reading um 
of it in myself. Pardon me if you can hear Pocus, the dog barking in the background. I believe I love somebody is approaching the sure. house. Um, this has been Jamie Jackson. She's a personal and professional development consultant. She's going to be furthering her education to become a clinical psychologist. Thank you so much for coming on here. I should say, if you're listening to this, I'm sure that if you need some kind of help or guidance, Jamie would be willing to talk to you. So feel free to reach out, of her, out to her. I'll uh, link her Instagram in the section below so you can get in contact with her if you have any further questions. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on here. It's been a pleasure speaking Absolutely. With you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. With that, I'd like to jump over to our quick quote. C.S. Lewis writes, It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like eggs at present, and you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. Change can be scary, usually because of the unknown. For the bird within the egg, the inside is all that it's ever known. It doesn't know how to fly yet, nor does it know the dangers of the world. Without jumping in, going for it, without breaking out of the egg, we never discover reality, and instead exist two steps behind a fabricated reality based on fear. When it comes to changing our reality, the first step has to be reflection. As Jamie touched on, there is not one way to view something. It is determined by you. Whether stubborn is persistence or insecurity is humility, we determine its connotation as we filter it through our brains. No matter how big or how small, you have to break out of the cage. A year from now, you'll wish you'd started today. Your All Set is sponsored by All Set. Community, everything, all the time. Download All Set in the app or Google Play Store to join a community of forward-looking thinkers looking to make the world a more efficient and effective place. Offer what you have, get what you need. That's what All Set is all about. And now, back to the show. This has been among my favorite conversations on the show. Jamie is well-equipped as both a resource for mental hygiene and growth, and also as a friend with good perspective. If you're a regular listener here on Your All Set, I'd like to extend some gratitude. It's episodes like these that I feel are easily applicable to all of us, and it feels good to be able to relay the message to you guys. Controlling how we perceive the world means controlling what our world is. Control can be a slippery slope, and grasping for too much of it can be harmful. But if we simply strive to focus on those things that are in our control, like mentality, perspective, and how we project those things to the world, we are able to exist in a world of our own. I should say that I'm no guru who has it all figured out, but rather one of the billions of human beings on this earth trying to figure it out. Thank you for joining us. I hope that you take away some valuable information from today's episode. If you have questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out using the message feature on the Anchor FM site. My name is R.C. Dietrich, and this has been Your All Set, a radio show about navigating the chaos of the world together. Until next time, peace.